Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, again, it's so good to be with you. My name is Pastor Andrew. I'm the other interim co-lead pastor. And uh, welcome to you if you're here in person. Welcome to you online. And a special welcome to you if you're curious about the faith. Maybe you haven't decided to follow Jesus yet, and and you're just wondering, what is this Jesus guy all about? Well, I have, uh, you know, churches for 2,000 years thought this guy was just so amazing that they would give their lives to him. I'm so glad you're here. We are a church that wants to go deep into Jesus and reach wide with his love. And part of that on Sundays when we celebrate Jesus together is we want to go deep into his word. So I want to invite you to get a Bible out as we continue in our series in the book of Romans, where in chapters 5 and 6, we've started to consider what Paul, who wrote this letter to the church in Rome, tells us about all these different layers of the new life that Jesus opens up for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And it's been an incredible journey so far, and uh, today we're going to be getting into something that I think is going to touch all our lives. So uh, we're checking out Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 11. Uh, If you are using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 914. Please do have the scriptures open before you, whether you're using this or scrolling on your device and track with me. So Romans 6, verses 1 to 11, and let's give ear for what we're about to read is the word of the Lord. It says this, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is God's word. Why don't we pray together? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I thank you for this moment in history where we are here and being brought into an encounter with you. I ask that you would send your spirit upon us, the same spirit who inspired Paul to write these words, come and illumine our hearts and minds, that we would grasp and receive what you're saying to us, that we would understand the profound depths of the gospel and the new life that is available to us through you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your mighty name. Amen. 
In the mid-1800s, the German poet Henrik Hein was lying on his deathbed, and he said these famous words, God will forgive me. It's his job. God will forgive me. It's his job. And maybe you've heard a version of that idea, maybe from a skeptic at work or at school, or maybe you've kind of wondered that yourself. Um, You know, people tend to claim that when they hear forgiveness and grace, it doesn't really make sense, right? If God forgives sinners, then God is taking away the main reason for them to actually change how they live. He's a divine enabler. And so why not just live how you want? And you can see from our text today, Paul encountered this idea as well in his day as he announced the good news of God's grace and forgiveness for sinners. Last week, we looked at how he announced the reign of grace, no longer the reign of sin. And he ended by saying, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And I think this got people wondering as Paul was spreading this message, well, if my sin creates the opportunity for God to be gracious, then why don't we just keep on sinning? You're welcome, God, you know. Uh, Batman needs the Joker. There needs to be a villain in all this. God will forgive me. It's his job. And Paul's response is a bit surprising. He starts talking about death, which is a very strange way to tackle this question. He starts talking about how when you became a Christian, when you put your faith in Jesus, you actually died. You died with Jesus in the death that he died. And and what I want to do today is, is put before you the idea of a good death, the good death that we are invited to die in Jesus. So let's consider what the good death is. Check out verses one to three with me in your Bible. This is the question, right? This is the thought. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? And Paul says, by no means. This is like a really emphatic, no way. He says, we are those who have died to sin. Past tense, this has happened. How can we live in it any longer? And then he says, don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Jesus, past tense, were baptized into his death? This is a reality check. Hey, Christian, do you know you've already died? Maybe this is news to you. Maybe you might be saying, I didn't know I died. But what Paul is saying is you have died to sin. You've been baptized with Christ. Baptized is a word that literally means immersed. You've been immersed into the death of Jesus Christ. And what this is saying about the Christian life is that this is essential. This isn't just like, oh, some Christians, this is true of some of them, you know, the elite ones, the ones who come to church every Sunday and are really pious. No, this is talking about everybody because baptism is an essential part of being Christian. Baptism is the initiation into the Christian faith. And when Paul was writing this, he wasn't so much concerned with, well, but does baptism save? Of course he wouldn't say that. But for Paul and the writers of the New Testament, uh, you became a, a Christian and then you were baptized. They were caught up in the same movement of coming to Jesus. You were immersed in water as a sign of your immersion into the atoning death of Jesus. And you rose to rise with him in his life, right? We had a baptism back in November, and what did you see? You saw people standing in the tank there, and they went down, 
into death, and they didn't stay there, thanks be to God. They rose, right? They rose. That's the death and the new life. That's the imagery of baptism that Paul is recalling. And what he's saying is this. Following Jesus is about a lot more than behavior. Following Jesus is about a lot more behavior. Following Jesus is about the fact that God has done something in history that forever changes you at the level of your being. I remember back in my university days, one of my housemates came home from the thrift store with like a really oversized t-shirt. It hung down to his knees. It was bright orange. And written in all caps on it, it said, Stop Sinning. And I knew that he had bought it, you know, kind of a Cavalier University student. He bought it with, as like a novelty, right? It was kind of this ironic choice of a t-shirt, stop sinning. And, and I'm sure the t-shirt was made with all serious, and I'm sure you've seen t-shirts or bumper stickers like that out there. And sometimes the church's response or the Christian response to the world happens on the level of behavior. So the church looks out at the world and, and we see the problem Uh, And we think the problem is this, people are sinning. And so what do we need to do? We need to tell them, stop sinning. We appeal to behavior. But here's the thing, appeals to behavior don't often work. All of you parents know, you just tell your kid not to do something, it's going to make them want to do it all the more. We've got this rebellious spark in us, don't we? And the other thing, too, is when the church kind of adopts that kind of bumper sticker spirituality of saying, stop sinning to the world, people hear that and they say, who are you to tell me what to do, right? And second of all, give me a reason. Why? Don't just tell me what I should do. Show me why I would want to do it in the first place. And the problem is, is is that as Christians, sometimes we haven't actually wrestled deeply enough with this question to be able to offer a compelling answer. And bumper sticker spirituality has convinced so many people, both inside the church and out of it, that being a Christian is mostly about what you do. It's about behaving differently. And so most people look at us and they say, that's not even worth my time. And look at the question in verse 1. It's on the behavioral level, right? They say, should we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Can we still behave in this way? Um, you, you know, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but can't we keep behaving this way? God is gracious. Jesus forgives our sin. So why can't we just keep on sinning? And Paul's response brings us from that level of behavior to the deeper level of our being. You want to behave that way, he says? You can't. And here's why. Because through belief and baptism, something has happened to you that has made you become a new creature, a new being, and you have a new life. You are different than you used to be. You have died to sin. So how can you keep living in it, right? Paul doesn't just say, no, stop sinning. Get it through your head. He tells us we've died to sin. Therefore, sin is incompatible. Sin is no longer compatible with who we now are in Christ. And and friends, this is one of the baseline truths that the word is announcing to us that we really need to get today. It's that sin is incompatible 
with the new humanity in Christ. It's no longer compatible. You know, in our world, as we talk about sin, our world might, you know, use different language or categories to speak of it, but generally it's accepted in the world that sinning is just part of what it means to be human, right? Our culture says, unless you're sinning, you're not living, right? Or that in order to live a fully human life, the the answer is don't repress anything, Let your drives find their full expression. Let the sovereign self follow its appetites. There's this view that sin is just part of what it means to be human. And and sometimes this leaks into the church, doesn't it? That, That what we hear in the church is more like, oh, you sinned again, but there's grace. And you'll probably just keep on repeating the cycle, but just try your best. Keep it under control, manage it. Maybe hide it, tuck it away so that nobody on Sunday or in your small group sees it. And sometimes that's all we offer. Because on some level, we've also believed the lie that it's just human to sin. Let me be clear. And what Paul's view here is, and really a scriptural view of the human person, is that to sin is fallen human. But sin wasn't there in the beginning. Those of you who know your Bible, you know that in Genesis 1 and 2, God made the world and he made it good. And he said, when he kind of stepped back and had a lemonade, you know, looking at all his handiwork, he said, it's very good. Sin doesn't come in until chapter 3. It wasn't there in the beginning. And then those of you who know the end of the story, you know, is sin part of the picture? When heaven comes to earth and Jesus returns to make all things new, sin's not there. See, sin, even though it has become the universal human condition, isn't actually part of what God made us to be. It's not part of what it means to be truly human. Here's what sin is. Here's how sin is cast in the Bible. Sin is a hostile takeover. Sin is a hostile takeover. It came from the outside, from the lie of the devil, which we believed, and we opened the door to sin. It entered into the world of our free will, that in our pride and immaturity, we listened to the devil's words rather than God's words. But sin is not part of what it means to be truly human. It's a hostile takeover. Do you remember the riot in the U.S. Capitol? Happened just a year ago. I mean, I can't believe that this happened Last year, let alone in our lifetime. I mean, it was surreal. There's half-naked people in buffalo skins, like a mob of modern William Wallace's crying, freedom, tear gas everywhere. People are hanging from the walls. It was complete pandemonium. Now, nobody looking on that riot, on what was a hostile takeover, would say, that's just a day in the life of the U.S. Capitol. No one would say, ah, that's normal. If you work on Capitol Hill, that's what you're going to experience every single day. No, that's ridiculous. It was a hostile takeover. That's not how it's supposed to be. In the same way, sin is a hostile takeover of God's good world. The the difference is, is that we've been living in occupation for so long that it's really easy to buy the lie that this is actually what it means to be human, that this is really all there is. That's not the case. Sin is a hostile takeover of God's good world. And sin is really a corruption. It's a distortion of God's good gifts to us. So think with me on this. Lust 
is the corruption of the gift of intimacy and human connection. Greed is the corruption of the gift of provision and abundance. Pride is the corruption of uh, being made for glory. And that, that, that nature of being made for God's glory gets twisted so that we crave our own glory apart from God. You get the idea. If you look at you know, all the ways we fail and sin, um, it's a distortion, it's a diminishing, it's a corruption of God's good gifts. The evil one doesn't have the power to make. He can only corrupt what God has made. Or in the word of, of Jesus, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Why am I laboring this point? You're like, I, I didn't come this morning to talk about sin and get into this. The reason why this is so important is because if we believe that sin is how it's supposed to be, we're already sunk. We're actually doing what the first humans did and we're listening to the lies of the evil one rather than the word of God. We were not made for sin. We were made for God. And it's through the good death it's through the good death of being joined to Jesus in his death that we receive this redeemed human life, that we are freed, our text says, not only from sin, but in order to become truly human. Those are the results that we see of the good death. There's new life and freedom from sin. Look at verse 4. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Or we too, some translations say, might walk in newness of life. This is a result of the good death. Look at verse 6 and 7. He tells us we've been freed from sin. It says, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with. Uh, that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And then he says this, for he who has died is freed from sin. Newness of life, freedom from sin. This is what it means to be truly human. This is what it means to be the new humans through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So some of you might be wondering, Pastor Andrew, does this mean that Christians should never sin? Absolutely not. The point that Paul is making is not that we'll never sin again. His point is that we're no longer under sin's dominion. Sin is no longer our master. We're no longer slaves to sin because sin is more than the bad things that you do. Sin is a power that wants to rule over you. And this is why the gospel goes so much deeper than telling people to stop sinning. It's because the real problem isn't in the world isn't that people are sinning. The real problem is that we're enslaved to it. And so the gospel comes and not just, doesn't just say stop sinning. It says, here's Jesus. He's freed you from slavery. Because of Jesus, we're no longer slaves. That's the point. My friends, this is really good news. This is not talking about, you know, your personal sinless perfection. This is talking about the cosmic end of sin's dominion, all because of Jesus. Now think about our witness, our message to our city and our world as, a, as the church. As we want to share good news with lost people 
who, let's be honest, today in our cultural moment, what people are trying to do is discover their truest self. People are desperate for meaning. They want to know what it means to be fully alive and fully human. And the gospel says your truest self, the self that God made you to be, is not sin. You weren't made for the corruption and heartbreak and regret that defines your life. You were made for more, and Jesus can free you from it if you trust him. The good news is that Jesus has freed us from sin for a new life. And let me tell you, friends, it does result in changed behavior. The gospel goes deeper than our behavior, but then it works its way outward into our lives. God's work gives us a new heart. He renews our minds. He he forms new habits as we participate with him in his work in us through what we call spiritual formation or the practices of Jesus or discipleship. But it's not just that you've modified your behavior by your own effort. It's because you've died the good death. You've been born again. You've been regenerated. You've died and risen with Christ into newness of life. And so transformation does happen, but we've got to know the core. We've got to know the the core rock-bottom truth. You have died to sin, and you've been made alive to God and Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to show you how the good death that leads to life is actually reasonable. Because of, some of you might be thinking, you know, this is a little too mystical for me. It's a little spiritual. How does something that happened to a man named Jesus of Nazareth 2,000 years ago, how does that like, intersect with my life today? How does his death connect with me? And I just want to say straight up, it is mysterious. It is spiritual. And let me just challenge you to, to consider that there's more to life than what you can see with your unaided senses. There's more going on in the universe than what is just available to you and visible to you. Because the God that we're talking about here is the God we were singing about. The God who is majestic. The God who created the earth. The God who has no beginning and no end. He is far above us. He has a different relationship to time and space. You see, the good death makes sense because of who God is and because of who Jesus is. Last week, we considered how Jesus is not like other people. He was fully God and fully human. And he didn't just die, but he was raised from the dead. And there's a ton of robust historical data supporting that claim. And not only this, but the scriptures declare that he's alive. He's the crucified and risen Lord. And last week, as we considered what it means for Jesus to be our representative and master, how he has gathered up in himself our whole humanity and redeemed it, what's true of him becomes true of us by grace. This is what theologians sometimes call the great exchange. And so when we're talking about the good death into Jesus' baptism, it is reasonable because of who Jesus is. If he's just a moral teacher, you're right, there's no way. If he's just an enlightened man, there's no way. If he's just, you know, the leader of a, a Jewish sect, there's no way. But if he is the eternal word of God made flesh, if he is the original human in whose image humanity was made, if he was God on earth, and that makes all the difference. 
It's not hard to see how what happened to Jesus implicates the entire world in the event of the cross, in the events of Good Friday and Easter. The good death is reasonable because Jesus was raised. This is who Jesus is. He makes dead things come alive. That's who he is and what he does. You see, one of the central paradoxes of Jesus' own teaching is that in order to truly live, you need to die. In John 12, Jesus says this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and he's talking about his death on the cross. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. This is one of the more puzzling teachings of Jesus. It's that paradox that in order to live, you need to die. He uses the image of a seed, that a seed needs to die in order for new life to happen. And he's talking about his own death on the cross, but not only that, also his death as the blueprint for us, for what it means to follow in his way. He says, whoever serves me must follow me. The paradox is death leads to life. It's a paradox, but if you think about it, it's logical. There are all kinds of ways our life shows this to be true. Life is full of choices every single day that you make to die to lower desires so that higher desires and virtues can thrive in your life, okay? So think about nutrition, Think about exercise. Think about relationships. We all know the necessity of saying no to destructive and unhealthy ways so that we can say yes to the flourishing of our life, right? Dying to chips and choosing a salad. That one's hard for me. Dying to laziness and going for a jog. Dying to selfishness so that you can really love somebody and not just use them to fill the gaps in your own heart. Relationships are the prime example where we see death leading to life. Like if you're really going to love somebody, it's sacrificial. You have to give up your way, your wants, your time, your attention, your comfort, your security. The parents in the house are like, yeah, amen. Those of you who are caring for your aging parents, you're going, yes, amen. Those of you who are walking with a friend who's going through a really hard time and you're giving your time and you're walking with him, you're saying, yeah, I do have to die to what I want to do in order to love my friend. Real love at its heart is sacrificial in nature. We know this. And that if we don't get this in life, whether you're a Christian or not, if you don't understand that love and relationship involves a death that leads to life, you're going to wind up alone. The good death that leads to newness of life is entirely reasonable, and it's logical. It's written everywhere in the fabric of life, and you see it in nature. Jesus used that image of a seed like I already said, but check it out. Paul actually picks up this seed imagery and uses it in our text. In verse 4, look there. When he says, we were therefore buried, literally it it reads co-buried with Christ. What do you bury? A seed. 
And then in verse 5, it says, if we have been united with him in a death like his. Now, the word united here is an interesting one. It's it's actually a word that means co-planted. It's the Greek word co plus the word phyto, which means plant. And so what he's really saying is, you know, we we were buried with him. We were co-planted with him. Paul is picking up Jesus' own, uh, you know, metaphor of plant life, and he's casting it back on us. He's saying, just like a seed goes into the ground, it's buried, it's planted, you need to go into the ground, you need to be buried with Jesus. And when it's buried, when it is planted with Jesus, it dies and it will bear much Fruit. You see, friends, the good death that Paul is inviting us into and is announcing to us is the seedbed for true human life. Jesus wants you to have an abundant life. He's not here to repress you. He's here to set you free. Free from sin and fully alive to God. And I just want to challenge you to never settle for less. Never settle for less. And here's kind of the pinch of Jesus' teaching. Jesus said that the good death is not only reasonable, it's not just like one good option among many. He said it's the only option for true life. Jesus said either you cling to your life and lose it or you give me your life and you find it. And let's be real. This is offensive in our cultural moment where we're told that the key to life is to say yes to the sovereign self, to say yes to every drive and desire you have. Rather than deny ourselves, we're told to indulge. But let me just say, this is where we need to choose. This calls for a decision. Are we going to buy into the idolatry of self or will we believe God when he says the best possible thing that could happen to you is that you die, is that you die with Christ, the good death. And and here's the thing, and we don't like to think about this. I think COVID has kind of brought this reality directly home to us in a way that makes us a bit uncomfortable. But here's the reality. Death comes to us all. Statistical certainty. But Jesus offers the good death now that leads to abundant life and eternal life. So choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. Now, I want us to think about how do we live this out now? If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, maybe you've been following him for a day or maybe you've been following him for like 10 years or 20 years. Um, Paul is bringing us a reality check. You've been co-buried, co-planted with Christ. You've died to sin and you have newness of life. How do we live that out? Because every day we feel our limitation, right? We feel our brokenness. Uh, Yes, we're no longer under the dominion of sin, and yet we're still vulnerable to its influence. How do we experience this newness of life now? One thing. Look at verse 11 with me. In verse 11, it says, in the same way, and he's talking about the same way that Jesus defeated death, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is actually the first command in the text. This is the first time Paul actually tells us to do something. 
Verses 1 to 10 has just been, this is how it is. This is what God has done for you. This is what Jesus has done for you. And now he's telling us, count yourselves dead to sin. It's the Greek word logizomai, where we get our word logic. This is about our reason, our logic, our self-understanding. It's really calling for logical consistency, right? Hey, if you've died with Christ, train your minds to know it. We're commanded to arm ourselves with a new mentality, a new self-understanding that replaces the old one. And this is an ongoing command. This isn't just like, oh, consider yourself, you know, you, you tallied it once like 10 years ago, you're dead. No, no, this is like daily. Keep doing this. Wake up in the morning. Consider yourself. Count yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And let me just say, this truth can change your life. This truth can change your life. When you think about your own struggle with sin, the areas when you're not living dead to sin, claiming this truth, allowing this truth to reframe you, to refocus you, to let you know this is how it actually is because of Jesus. This can change your life. I cannot emphasize enough how important it is to know the truth and its powerful shaping influence on your thoughts and behaviors. I mean, neuroscience shows this, right? That toxicity in our thoughts leads to toxicity in our entire life. Studies show this, how lies breed distorted ways of living, but truth breeds wholeness, beauty, and love. In his last prayer for his disciples, Jesus prayed for his disciples, and he says this in John 17. He asks his father to sanctify them, his disciples, by the truth. Then he says, your word is truth. Father, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify, that's a fancy word, meaning God sets us apart, makes us holy. He cleans us up. And what this is saying is truth is like a cleaning agent in your soul. Truth is like a cleaning agent in your mind and in your heart. That as we dwell on truth and enforce it, it filters out lies. It filters out distortions. It exposes them, and it enables you to expel them. Truth is a powerful thing. And in the same teaching where Jesus asked God to sanctify his disciples by the truth, he says this about God's Spirit. He calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth. In other words, that whatever the Spirit is up to in your life, central to that, is truth, is bringing the truth to bear on you and your circumstances, is renewing your mind in the truth. Because the fact is, you know, it's, it's great that Paul would say you're dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus, but the matter of counting ourselves that way, that's difficult. And what we actually need is God's spirit at work in us, doing this in us that the spirit of truth would be shining his light in our soul, filtering out lies and deception, showing us how it really is. And friends, the power we need in our struggle against sin, the power we need to actually live out what Paul is calling us to is not in us. It's in God himself. It's in Jesus. It's in the spirit of God working powerfully in us. 
and counting ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is part of how we participate. This is part of how we participate in what God wants to do in us. That we would welcome God's spirit and surrender to the spirit to come and do what only he can do. So at this point, as we move towards responding to this word, I want to invite the worship team up now. And I want us to engage in a moment of reflection in our own lives. So worship team, would you come? As we respond to what Jesus is saying to us in this moment, I, I want you to think and consider, is there any way that you need to count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus? Is there any way you're living as if you're alive to sin and dead to God? Is there a persistent habit or pattern that you're keeping from him? I want you to close your eyes and just hold that before Jesus. As you hold that before Jesus, I would invite you to make a commitment to receive God's truth and reject the lies of the enemy. to receive the truth from verse six that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we would no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Would you say an amen in your soul to this truth? That you were crucified with Jesus and that you're no longer a slave to sin. And then in verse 9, it says, For we know that Christ was raised from the dead. He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, the miracle here, the miracle of grace is that what is true of Jesus has become true of us and we don't deserve it and we can't explain it or contain it, but there it is. That in the good death, we have been joined to Jesus, united to Christ. And we need to know that what's true of him is true of us and receive that by faith. Jesus, thank you for this incredible grace. Thank you that your life stands in for ours. Thank you that all our sin and failure was taken by you on the cross. Thank you that we are no longer slaves to sin. Thank you that now you are the crucified and risen Lord and your life is our life. Would you help us to count ourselves as dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. We pray this. We beg you, Jesus. Empower us for this. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.